This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and I'm joined by Laura from AJ Bell. Hi. This week we're going to discuss how investors are reacting in the coronavirus situation. We'll look at the latest contender on the savings scene, how we will all afford to live in retirement, and we'll delve into the investment portfolios of millionaires. Uh, we're joined by Rachel Vay, who works in the technical team at AJ Bell. Hello. So we've talked a bit about coronavirus impact on markets on the podcast before, but this week it feels like it's ramped up a bit. And so, Dan, you've been looking at how investors have been reacting to that. So have they been panicking and selling everything or have they been using the dips as a chance to buy? Mm, I think I think there's mostly been selling. I've certainly seen some examples of like what people have been buying, but that the share prices of those stocks have not been in positive territory so um i'll give you examples easyjet was one of the most bought stocks this most week bought. That yeah so me. um so we've been having a look at the, sort of all, all the transactions that go through the aj bell sort of consumer platform so easyjet was one of the most bought but its shares is, are still not going up I, I think what's happening there is people are perhaps looking for opportunities think that's the airline sector sold off but overall it's been a completely different change to our conversation this time last week so to give you some examples the FTSE 100 and the S&P 500 so these are the two big stock market indices in the UK and America they're both down seven percent since the start of the week so oh, we wow. yeah we're recording this on Thursday morning so just to give you examples that's three and a bit days that's horrible. I mean, it, 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 if you'd bought something last week and you're seeing such big declines, it's not nice. Um, interestingly, in, in Asia, Hang Seng, which is the, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange Index, and in the Shanghai Stock Exchange Index, the, both those are only down 2%. So in relative terms, much less than the UK and America. So why is that? Why have th- UK and America been hit harder? Well, I think it's because part, part of the reason why markets have tanked around the world this week is that previously people thought this is a problem the coronavirus was just a problem um, concentrated on china mm-hmm. um, and maybe some sort of outskirts of countries around it in asia but um you know we had this big break in italy um there's one in tenerife you know the, every day there's another sort of examples of it spreading around other parts of the world and i think people just perhaps caught off guard and thought okay i didn't realize it's this serious um and i think people originally if you go back to some commentary maybe three or four weeks ago everyone was saying okay it's in china and it's only going to be a sort of a first quarter of the year problem well we now know it's beyond china um clearly going to affect companies beyond the first quarter of this year um and then the idea that central banks around the world would step in with stimulus programs well we haven't really seen any major examples of that yet so well hong kong has had one hasn't it where it's giving residents um a handout of money to try and boost the economy so i think um residents are getting i can't remember exactly how much the amount is but it's not an insignificant amount where all residents get that so that's the only example i've seen so far of kind of the government intervening and trying to boost the economy yeah i mean suggestion that china will step in with a massive stimulus program i'm sure they will but i think at the moment what they're doing is looking that if the country's still kind of in lockdown people aren't spending at the moment so what's the point in sort of throwing loads of money at various stimulus things um, until 
society's back to back to normal, um, and then it can really start to help get the economy moving again. But for, for now, it's uh, yeah, it, it's it's a very difficult situation, and we've emphasised this point before: is you mustn't panic by these things. Don't just suddenly, if you see everything falling in your portfolio, sell and just put it all into gold. Um, just think, just think, you know, a much more longer term view of what's going on. I think um, we had James Anderson, who's fund manager of Scottish Mortgage, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Or was it last week? I lose track. Anyway, um, his view was probably one that lots of investors should follow, which is, yes, this might affect things in the short term, but it'll be a kind of quarter, couple of quarters effect, and I'm investing for the very long term, so it doesn't affect anything other than there might be some bargains out there where people have sold out of stuff that I can pick up. And that's probably quite a sensible mentality, isn't it? Yeah, it's, I guess it's the, you know, when is the bottom of this correct market correction? So uh, it certainly looks like there's more to go. Um, but I don't know. No, no one knows. I think that's the point. No one knows what's really going to happen. I thought it'd be quite interesting to look at some stocks that people have been buying, apart from EasyJet, to give you an idea of what's going through investors' minds. So this week on Asia Bell's platform. Among the stocks, um, the most bought is uh, primary health property. So this is uh, it's actually it's more of a fund, but it, it's, it's a, it, they invest in healthcare property. So yeah, as you can guess, so people are looking for assets that are seemingly uncorrelated to the market. So, so if the economy was to take a dive, theoretically, there, there must be somewhere in the world where assets will still be in demand. So we've all got to go to health centres where the economy is doing well or it's not well. Um, there's this little tiny company we've mentioned a few times now called Novasite, which has developed a, a, a test for coronavirus. Now they, they've had tens of thousands of orders for these um, tests, but haven't told anyone what sort of revenue they're getting. So share prices could be going crazy. But it's gone up a ridiculous amount yeah, so far this year. 800,000%. I mean, it, it is... is it, it, insane sort of stuff but who knows what that means for its actual earnings what i thought was interesting was that one is one of the most bought but also one of the most sold so people that already owned it have seen the share price shoot up and have maybe taken some profits out of it but people are still buying yeah there's some wild swings in that share price like you know you could if you bought if you, you totally bought that at the wrong time i after a massive rally you could have lost significant amounts of money and then potentially crystallize those losses mm. and then it bounced back up again you know it, it really is day trader um focus mm. uh, at the moment people will be buying they've been buying infrastructure funds gold um etf so tracking the gold price um interesting there's been people been buying um etfs that tracking the FTSE 100s so obviously sort of perhaps taking a longer term view that the, the the sort of the UK's big index is going up but also um, and this is like total alarm bell territory one of the most um, bought ETFs is a FTSE 100 super short strategy so You're gonna have shall to explain I put that, that into plain English <laughs> yes, please <laughs> that is people betting on the FTSE 100 index falling in value um I imagine super short strategy would suggest it might be a bit leveraged. So it, so it means it's got a multiplier on yeah, it. Yeah. So so if if um, if it fell say by ten percent, the index this ETF would move by say twenty percent. So twice as much as the movement. So oh God, these things are are, are just a ticket to um, potentially losing lots of money if they don't go in the direction you want. And um, I don't think this is 
somewhere that retail investors should really be risking their money. Very, very high risk products. Particularly in times so, that are so volatile yeah. as we've seen in the past week where things are going up and down all over the shop. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so. So can we can we what can, I was thinking, what can we learn from what's going on? So if you if you look at the oil price chart over the last say month, that's been falling well before stocks were implying that, that you know, people thinking oil represents the world economy. So if the oil price is falling, um, the warning signs perhaps were there that the stock market should have been falling as well. And it's perhaps doing a bit of catch up now. Um, some of these airline stocks have taken such a big hit. Um, and where could happen next? I, I think the thing you've got to look for now is if the coronavirus spreads to real typical summer holiday destinations, that could cause another big wobble in that sector. I mean, I don't know if you haven't booked your holiday yet and you think you might go to Spain or Greece and suddenly you see this coronavirus. I don't, are you going to do it? Where are you going, Laura, for your... Do you know what? Alarmingly for me, I have not got any further holidays booked. Oh, which is a source of panic for me. Rachel, but maybe I can snap up a cheap deal now. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, you, have you booked your holiday? I have. I'm going to France in the uh, end of May. So I'm hoping that yeah. it's not going to, to be in the France at the end of May. But it's already Italy and it's already Greece and Tenerife. And I think you, you, every morning you, you wake up, you listen to the radio, and then there's a, it, it's gone somewhere else. You know, the first case in mainland Spain was yesterday or the day before. So mm. I think you're right. It's going to spread through Europe quite quickly. And, I, uh, you know, we were talking about this in the office. What do you do if you booked your holiday already? Um, you know, did the, is the insurance company going to give you money back? I think at the moment they're going to say that it's, well, it's your decision that you don't yeah. want to go. So at the yeah. moment the airlines aren't refunding unless it's an area where the government has said explicitly you can't travel and that's quite a small list at the moment. So the airlines won't refund you and I think hotels and places like that are just being inundated with requests for refunds, particularly in areas so like Italy, for example, this week. Um, and it's probably unlikely they're going to refund you. So then you have to go to travel insurance. And it depends whether they classify this as a kind of a bit like a, a hurricane or, or things like that um, as a kind of, of yeah, an act of God <laughs> type situation yeah. as to whether they'll cover you or not. I've currently got a travel insurance claim in for my holiday because we had oh. cancellations because of coronavirus. You see, Laura, you're constantly talking about going on holiday. <laughs> and whenever I say, like, if you, if you get the lottery or something, you always say to me, well, there's only one answer. I would go on a holiday. And so it's in my mind, I've been thinking I should travel more. So I've booked for three different overseas trips. You're inspired by me. This year. Amazing. And, and now I'm thinking, is that the greatest mistake of my life? So... <laughs> <laughs> Where are they? Is it um, certain parts of Lombardy and <laughs> in Italy? Or? No, Nor Norway, Portugal and Greece. So I'm going to one of them no matter what happens. I, I think your life lesson <laughs> is just don't follow anything I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, well, it, just before Christmas, I transferred um, one of my old pensions into a SIP. So I thought, OK, I'll, I'll go and invest in stuff that I can choose rather than having... Um, whatever that sort of mm. the old life insurance company's standard product was. So um, I spent ages building this little portfolio. Because now I'm looking at it thinking, you know, I've, I've invested uh, a, a chunk of my pension at, just at the point where all the market's falling. So I, I can I can totally empathise with um, probably lots of our listeners who are thinking, oh, what's going on? Um, I think there's so much noise out there and there's so much um, panic 
when the stock market does this, that you, you it's natural to panic and it's natural to go, am I doing the right thing and to question yourself? But it's, it's going back to what you are trying to achieve and you're trying to achieve better savings for yourself in later life or whenever that later life is. You're, and you are, you're investing for the medium to long term and it's just remembering, you know, just, just stick with it. You will be fine. This is, these sort of things have happened before and they will happen again. And it's just remembering that, you know, you're in there for five years. Yeah, I agree. I but think the best tip that people, do it. best tip people can do is just back away from logging into their yeah. investment account yeah. too often. Yeah. Because if you log in and you see that that day, for example, the FTSE has gone down by 7% that week or whatever, then you might panic. Whereas if you're confident in the strategy you put together, then just leave it for the long term. Although that is, it is quite hard to resist just logging in and having yeah. a peek. That's when too much information is a, a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> One of our esteemed colleagues said to me the other day, um, we were talking about what, what we'd got in pensions and I said I'd bought um, a bond fund. I, I wanted some bond exposure. And they said, what are you doing wasting your time with bonds at your age? You should be taking big risk. And, and now look who looks uh, silly. Of my amazing SIP that I <laughs> bought just for Christmas, bonds is one of the best performing bits of it. Well, certainly how I hope you pointed that out to this person. I haven't seen him yet so i'm going to find him after this yeah. <laughs> i think that's a lesson on the value of diversity yes, no, absolutely. and a balanced portfolio so i think yeah. you're demonstrating that really well <laughs> so next up away from coronavirus rachel you've been taking a look at some interesting figures showing how much money we actually need to live on in retirement um and it's pretty revealing slash i found it slightly alarming <laughs> Well, these are um, a set of standards that have been brought out by an organisation called the Pensions and Lifetime and Savings Association. And what they're trying to do is to help people figure out how much money they need in later life. So the standards give uh, very broad information on what we can expect for our living standards in retirement. Um, and I think it's they, they want to bring it in as um, just as a meaningful starting point as as actual figures that people can relate to. So there are three categories. There is a minimum, a moderate, and a comfortable category. And it relates to incomes you'll have in retirement. Um, so the minimum one is 10,000 a year. The moderate one is 20,000 a year. And the comfortable one is 30,000 a year for a single person. So it's a nice, easy 10, 20, 30 split. But what I think is quite interesting about it is rather than it just being, okay, here's 10 grand or 20 grand mm. or whatever, actually breaks it out into what you could afford for each of those things, doesn't it? Even down to yes. where you do your food shopping or how often you go out or things like that. Yeah, and there's some really interesting figures. So um, it assumes that you're, you're not paying rent or a mortgage. That's interesting. So Which if you, is a big assumption now, isn't it? Is, it is, isn't it? It's a, you know, going forward, you, you wonder how many people are actually going to be in that position. So you might have to add that on. But if you're in the minimum category, then they're assuming that you can only spend or you spend £38 a week on your food shop, that you don't run a car, that you've got no foreign holidays, which... Um, is, is already following. I'm out yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm following on just from the previous conversation you might not have them anyway um, 
and that you're you're spending £10 for every birthday gift you buy that particular year. So that's the right down at the very bottom. But at the comfortable one, which is if you have £30,000 as a single person or roughly about £45,000 as a couple, then it's a much nicer lifestyle being painted. You, you, can, um, you can replace your kitchen and bathroom every 10 years and you can have a, a two-year-old car replaced every five years and you have three weeks in Europe for your holiday and it, it just sounds so much more appealing but I think it's what it's showing is to people I think you get so much noise from pension companies um, and a lot of this is driven by the regulators and what we have to send out but we send out so many figures to people and so many illustrations full of information that people find I think hard to relate to um, you know, it's all to do with 5% illustrative yield and things like that, and this accounting for inflation and this, this, that and the other. And really what this is saying is that if you look at the figures you're going to get, this is what your life could possibly look like. And if people get these figures early on, then they're going to be hopefully make a better decision about how much money they want to put away for their retirement and how much money they want to save. Yeah, I think it's so smart because you tend to think of a, a pension in your retirement as this really far away thing and you maybe set your heart on an arbitrary amount of money mm. or um but this actually puts into paints a real picture, I guess, of what your retirement could be like if you have these different amounts of money. Yeah. I found it quite motivating actually in terms of, okay, well I want to be able to have a holiday, for example, so then I need to be putting a bit more away so that I can save yeah. more and I thought it was quite positive as well. I mean a lot of uh, messages sometimes for retirement um, sometimes they veer into this we're all doomed you, the state pension age is rising so much we're all going to work until we drop and then when we actually you know get to take our retirement we're all going to be sat there eating cold baked beans by huddling by you know a single bar on your electric fire and it's going to be miserable and I thought actually this was quite positive it was quite practical and, and as I said before it just seemed to cut through everything and it, it just seemed to be realistic and you thought well actually yeah that gives me a much better feel for what I want to do rather than the either the the images of uh, being on a beach which is sometimes what's sold with pensions mm -hmm. or the image that you're going to be have absolutely nothing I think this just seemed to be a little bit more positive and life-affirming I think it's quite interesting the difference between couples versus singles so almost like the single person penalty yes well I think if you if you're looking at the figures if there's two if you got two um two twenty thousand pounds then you, you're almost into a comfortable you know two moderate living people makes almost makes one comfortable living couple and, and that's just common sense isn't it you're sharing bills you're sharing Sharing a car, maybe. Sharing a car, sharing, yeah. you know, it's going to be less for the holidays and things like that. So there's a lot to be said for making sure that you go into retirement and, as a couple. Although that could be, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be um, husband or wife or partner. Or it could be yeah, sibling, it could be friends, you know, and I think uh, there's a lot to be said with that generally. I imagine with loneliness as well and elements like that and, you know, so... But certainly two people live cheaper. Do you think, I was looking at some of these figures. Do you think they're, they're actually truly representative? In the comfortable bracket, you'd have a £56 weekly food shop, which seems a bit low, doesn't it? <laughs> that, that quite frightened me when I think about how much I spend yeah. at the moment when I go around. Yeah. But you've got to think, <laughs> you guys have got children at the moment. 
So I'm guessing they cost quite a lot in terms no, of food. barely feed them. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah that's one way to save yeah. costs. Yeah. <laughs> I think with, with all of this, I think when you actually... In, in a way, when you sit there and you look at the figures, you can probably pick lots of holes in them. Yeah. And you can probably look at it and go, well, that doesn't really quite make sense, or that's not expensive enough, or they haven't, as I said, they haven't assumed for any rent or mortgage, or, you know, you can pull figures out, you can pull holes out of this. And I think it is meant to be a broad brush approach. And I think it's almost take it in the spirit it's meant that it gives you an, an indicative starting position. And it's not going to be right for... It's probably one of these set of figures that's not going to actually meet anybody. You know, this is not going to be representative of me. It's not going to be representative of you. But it's a broad-brush approach for a population. So in, in a way, it's probably better just to get over the, the minor figures and just to, just to go with it as a, as a starting point, as a helping hand. And if so, so, so if someone wants to get hold of this document which mm-hmm. lays out where exactly do they go to find it you just google retirement living standards and it, they've got the whole website um but we are finding that what's going to happen is um certain pension providers and pension schemes are going to start using it in their communications and their messages to their um to their customers and it's also going to be part of um the money and pension service which is the is the new um guidance um, body and they're going to put it into their messages for customers as well so hopefully this is going to be widespread and what the PLSA want as I said I think I said before they want it as a five a day rule of thumb they want someone just mm-hmm. to say oh I knew no that bracket yes I'm roughly in there I understand that there are certain bits and pieces I can do to get me to a different bracket and and I think they just want to not an, it's not an exact replication of what you're going to get in retirement or what you could personally spend your money on. And there's lots of ways you can put your personalization around all of that with the information you get from pension companies. But it's just meant as a very broad brush indication, really just to help people get started. And it could be a good um, thing, to your point, Dan, if you want to spend a bit more on food, you could start this use it as a starting point and then kind of add to it where you think oh okay I'll spend a bit more on that or spend a bit less on that and come up with your own almost like a personalised version of it that will help you work out your retirement you could tailor it for your several holidays a year (laughs) yes I'll just be eating beans and so my food bill will go down but I'll have six holidays a year yeah So, Laura, you've been taking a peek into the portfolio of people who've managed to build up a million pounds in their ISA. So what lessons can we learn from this exclusive club? I know. It's good, isn't it? A million pounds in your ISA. I feel like everyone wants that. Um, So, yeah, I've been having a look on the AJ Bell UInvest platform um, and looking at the number of people that have got a million pounds or more in their ISA and looking at the kind of things that they're investing in so us mere mortals who don't quite have a million pounds yet could learn some lessons from them so what so is it are they in stocks or funds or a mixture of stuff so they're in a mixture of stuff but a really small proportion is in funds so a lot of it is directly in stocks or in kind of ETFs or trackers or in investment trusts so only the average across all of them is only 3% of the money is actually in funds because um, it was really low. Because uh, yeah, I was thinking, if if you to become uh, a millionaire via investing, maybe you do need to take bold 
bets, like have, have real conviction in perhaps some stocks, certain a small group of stocks, a bit like some of the successful fund managers. That's the way they outperform the markets to be quite selective. Uh, um, I still thought that funds would be much higher than that. So, I did as well. Yeah. I thought that there would be a lot of individual stock picking and that might be where people had seen their kind of massive growth from, um, but that there would be a kind of hearty... Uh, core of funds but yeah that's not really the case um the average number of holdings is 38 which i thought was quite interesting which feels fairly well diversified for a pot of that size yeah it varies dramatically though some people have much more amounts than that and um, one person has 173 holdings mm. which feels like to me quite a lot to monitor unless you're doing that as your full-time job which some people do to be fair because you've got to think this ISA might just be one part of their portfolio they might also have a large um, SIP or self-invested personal pension that they're also managing and and a lot of other money and they may also kind of treat this a bit like a full-time job investing. Um, what about some of the names I mean sort of are we assuming that these are all um sort of fast growth tech stocks or actually there any surprises like any sort of boring old life insurance companies and stuff like that? So there's kind of a mixture. Lloyd's is the most commonly held um, stock among the group. So there's about 30 IC millionaires and, and among them a large proportion hold Lloyd's. But that's not too surprising because if you look across our entire customer base at AJ Bell, Lloyd's is perennially the most popular stock, so that's kind of just reflecting that. Um, in terms of the, the stocks that have made this group the most money, Amazon is one example. So there's quite a lot of kind of US tech stocks okay, that have made supercharged sense. returns. So uh, one of the one um, ISA millionaire bought Amazon when they were £19 a share, um, and they're now more than $2,000 a share. So that's a pretty savvy move. Uh, Tesla is another um, one that's given massive returns, and Google parent company alphabet which has gone up by a thousand percent for um one of them but also quite a lot of uh uk stocks and smaller uk stocks so there's a plastic producer called victrex which i've not heard of but i'm sure you have done yeah. um and an aim listed iodine producer called iafina that's a household name okay never heard of it <laughs> <laughs> and a polymer producer called synthoma but all of those have seen massive returns so i think um, when you look at the kind of biggest returners, you're looking at either big US tech stocks or quite small kind of those AIM listed stocks. But that's looking at the winners. Obviously, with kind of the small cap and AIM listed stocks, there's going to have been some losers along the way as well. But yeah. your hope generally in, when you're investing is not that everything will go up, but that your winners will go up by more than your losers and you'll end up with a profit. Yeah, OK. This, so there's there's still hope for us yet to... To hit the big jackpot. I like how confident you are. Yeah. Yeah, okay. We've got to be, I think. When you're surrounded by flashing red screens of <laughs> stock markets falling, you, you, they have to be optimistic. I just so. want to go back in time now and invest in all these stocks that have done really well. Yeah. If only I had that time machine. <laughs> <laughs> and so finally, there's a potential newcomer in the savings market. Uh, is this something we should be excited about or... Actually, aren't, aren't there already enough savings companies in the world? Do we need another There's one? There's never enough. We always <laughs> want more. Um, yeah, so the latest news is that J.P. Morgan Chase is in talks to launch a kind of London retail bank. So we saw this last year. We talk a lot about Marcus, which is um, the kind of UK retail bank from Goldman Sachs. And they launched last year, I think it was. Maybe it was a year before. 2018. Ah, yeah. I lose track of time. Um, so they launched and then they were kind of perennially top of the best buy list and their mode was 
was that we're going to come in, we're going to offer the top savings rate, and we're going to amass lots of customers. And they pretty much did that. Um, they've now started cutting their rates. But what we've had this week is kind of talk and rumours and various outlets, Sky News and the Financial Times reporting that um, Chase, which is the kind of biggest bank in America, um, planning to launch a UK retail arm. So the hope is that they could do a similar thing to Goldman Sachs did and kind of shake up the savings market because savings rates have been falling massively, particularly since the start of this year. So the hope is maybe a new entrant might come and shake things up and offer better rates for savers. Yeah, I mean, sa savings and loans is kind of what I've read. So it's a bit different than um, your Monzo sort of current account um, challenger banks as well. Mm. But I think, I mean, the, the Marcus from Goldman Sachs, it's it, it done very well, but you wonder, now, it, it, just that initial burst with the, with the market-leading um, savings rate has helped it attract lots of business, but... You know, is it really? It's not. A, it's not a best buy now, is it at all? So. I, no, it still is for if you want easy access oh, okay. and unlimited so. withdrawals. But it's cut its rates, but so has everyone else. So it still managed to be the best buy. I think it's now paying one point three percent, where initially it launched with hmm. one point five or one point four five. Um, so it's cut it, but because the rest of the market has dropped as well, it's still a leading rate. One point three is still quite healthy when you you think about what's happened in the last few weeks with several different organizations cutting it right back to 0.25 and things like that yeah if you can switch to 1.3 and still get full access then you know that's sounds Basically, very healthy yeah if you're not earning at least because there's a few different outlets that are offering about 1.3 so if you're not earning that in your savings then you should switch yeah. but annoyingly it's obviously still far below inflation which is 1.8 percent so cash is still not a great place to be yeah it's not it, it seems it does seem a strange move from JP Morgan to be doing this now. I don't know. I just it, it does seem like a very crowded market, and you know someone else could just come out and prepare to you know offer a good rate, prepare to accept that they're not going to make much money on it. So um, I think the Goldman example just showed how quickly you can acquire customers just by having a slightly better rate, a kind of half a percentage point better rate than the competitor. Um, and maybe that's piqued the interest of, of JP Morgan or other banks that want to build very rapidly in a new market and get a lot of customer base. Because then obviously the cynic in me says that then the mode is you then quietly slash those rates. Customers don't tend to move away because everyone's very apathetic with moving their bank accounts. And you've still got this kind of group of loyal customers, but you're not having to pay them too much. Yeah, I mean, looking at the... If you look at the other sort of challenger banks, the problem they've got is they're attracting masses of people to be current account customers, but they're losing, still losing those much money. Mm. And I think the issue, if you think about things like Starling and um, Monzo and stuff, a lot of people open those accounts, but they're, they're not their primary accounts. They're, they're, mm. they're still paying the salary into perhaps your Barclays, your NatWest, sort of the, the, the traditional banks. So they... Yes, you can see the customer account numbers are very impressive, but they're not really putting much money in there. And so the, the, you know, these banks aren't making anything on it. They, yeah, they, and that's their losing. big challenge is to turn it into profit rather than just yeah. the customer numbers. There's this consultancy called Accenture, and they, they worked out, well, they, they forecast that these digital banks at the moment, on average, are losing £9 per customer per year. Wow, that's so, a lot. Yeah, you, these, it's not sustainable to, to do this, so um, we'll see. I'm, I'm sure you'll be first in line, won't you, Laura, for a Chase savings account. If they offer more than my Marcus account, I definitely will be. <laughs> <laughs>
So thanks a lot for listening this week. As ever, if you have any suggestions for future topics or comments, then email them through to podcast at ajbell.co.uk. And please leave a review of us wherever you listen to your podcast as it helps other people to find us. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.